And the rest of us, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 21, please. We really, together, I believe, got a lot out of slowly going through that sermon of Paul's um, in chapter 20. And the reason we stretched that out so much is because so much of it was about church. I mean, it just meets us right where we are. Especially me, because he was speaking to the elders. But, you know, everything the elders did was relevant to everybody in the church. And many of the things that were brought forth were relevant not only to elders, but to every Christian anyway. Now we'll come to chapter 21, and we'll go a little faster through chapter 21, but I should tell you in chapter 22, there's another sermon of the Apostle Paul coming. But that, but that one should only take one, one message to go through. All right, um, let us pray. Dear Father, thank you for your word, which is rich and teaches us so much. I pray, Lord God, now that You'd help me to teach on the things that are here today and help us all to learn. Edify your people, we pray. If there's anyone listening, Lord, who, you know, needs to have their heart opened by you to the truth, that they might believe and be saved, we pray that you would do that work, for no one can come to you unless you draw them. And help us all to give good attention to the word to worship as we listen, to worship you as we listen to your word. I speak, but there's nothing about me that does anyone any good here. We need to hear from you. And so I pray you'd use me in whatever way might happen to please you. An amazing thought in and of itself. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts 21, verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus, greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. And the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. 
Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. And that should be enough to occupy us for today. All right. Uh, now, admittedly, this particular portion of Scripture could be one that in your own reading, or I in my own reading, any one of us could just kind of blast through it because, you know, you don't have like a sermon in here. You don't have in this passage of Scripture that anything that is of any, like, direct, intentional, like, theological instruction. And so you might just tend to kind of pass it by. And I just don't want to do that. So while I do acknowledge that the form, then, of the teaching that I'll dispense today... Uh, won't necessarily be the typical verse-by-verse -verse exposition because what happens is I, I'm doing a bit of mining here today, if you know what I mean, just kind of digging into this passage and seeing by, by sort of incidental principle or event or anecdote or, or, you know, mention some different things that bear stopping and thinking about, right? So in other words... I think that probably, I just want to set this aside just to be honest about it. I think when Luke, who is the human author of Acts, write these, writes these things, he's, not, he's probably not intending to convey everything that I'm going to say today. But there are things that he does mention as he brings us along the way that ought to prompt us to think about other things that are taught in Scripture when you read of someone, for example, speaking by the Spirit, there's nothing there that's particularly taught about that, but you ought to want to know what that's a reference to. When you read about a guy who has four daughters who prophesy, you ought to want, even though it doesn't say anything else about it there, you ought to want to know, like, what, what is it that he's talking about there? So, so what we'll do is we'll go through these things and because I don't want to just gloss over it and miss the opportunity to talk about some things and learn some things. So, so we'll spend some time and it'll become almost like, almost like this passage becomes the prompting for a topical Bible study, which, which will seem perhaps like a little disjointed. Like There are four main things that I want to teach about from this passage today, and they're not necessarily related to one another. Right? 
So it's not going to be like there's some main point and then a whole bunch of other things. There's this, there's this, there's this, there's this, and, 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 and each one of them may seem like not directly related to the other, except for the fact that they all appear in this, in this passage of Scripture in the book of Acts. Now, with that said, don't be disappointed. I think, I think that there is a lot of valuable stuff to talk about here today. And of, of these four points I have, the second of the four is the one that we'll spend the lion's share of our time on, all right? Um, so, first, let's go over... I don't know if you're like this, but I love to do this. Whenever I read a passage of Scripture like this, I, most Bibles have, like, maps printed in them, right? And they're not super detailed maps, but, but I love to, like, go to the maps and... Most like modern Bibles will even have maps that try to chart Paul's missionary journeys, right? So, uh, so, so you have here what would be called Paul, part of what's called his third missionary journey and, and getting ready for, to then leave from Jerusalem on what would be called the fourth missionary journey. And uh, so I like to kind of read of all these places and kind of get in my head. It maybe has special meaning to me because I spent, as a very young man, 15 months in the military, stationed right over in this area. You know, very, very, I was, you know, lived for a while very close to where all this stuff happened. So it's kind of neat for me. But it should, be, it should be neat for all of us. So verse 1, let's just go through this part of it quickly and then get into the points that I have. It came to pass when we had departed from them. The them is who? The elders of the Ephesian church that we spent the last two months talking about the sermon that Paul preached to them. And where were they? They were in Miletus, which is in western, what then would have been known as Asia, today Turkey, right? So they departed from there and they set sail. And running a straight course, they came to Kos, which is an island off the western coast of modern-day Turkey. Um, And then the following day, they came to Rhodes, which is a separate island, also in the same area. And from there to Patara, which is actually back on mainland Turkey. So it's not a great, uh, it's not a great like theological point, but it is an interesting historical point, uh, if you like to learn about these things, which I do, to show you what travel was like. You know, we, we, we tend to travel like to a place like this by getting on a plane and we expect the plane to strive to, to fly in a straight line and just land wherever it's supposed to land or, even with modern roads and modern cars, you know, we'd find, uh, we use our phones and our GPSs and, and find what's the best route to go somewhere. But, you know, they were, they were kind of the fastest way here was to actually get on a ship and sail out into the sea and land at an island. And then on the next day, get on another ship and sail over to another island. And then the next day, get on another ship and sail back onto the mainland, which is actually faster than just trying to walk the uh, walk on the mainland, right? So, uh, we have it made, don't we? Um, so then, finding a ship sailing to Phoenicia, and Phoenicia geographically would be uh, roughly the same as what we would call Lebanon today. Finding a ship sailing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. So they launched back out into the Mediterranean and they sight Cyprus, which is still called Cyprus today. And we passed it on the left, which if they're sailing eastward towards Phoenicia, means that they sailed south of Cyprus and the island was on their left. 
And we passed it on the left and sailed to Syria, which is also roughly in the same place that it would have been back then. And Syria also, Syria is a country, even in modern times, whose uh, land extends also all the way to the Mediterranean. So if you looked at a map of the world today and you found Israel, and you went north of Israel on the sea, there would be Lebanon. And if you went north of that, that would be the westernmost part of Syria, right? So you get the general direction then of where they were and where they were going. Um, and they landed at Tyre. Tyre is interesting because Tyre is a very old city. And Tyre is a city that still exists today, essentially in the same place that it existed back then. There are other cities in the world today where like, the modern version is here, and maybe the ancient version is a couple of miles away. The modern city of Tyre basically sits where the ancient city of Tyre is. And at the time that this was happening, and this was written, the city of Tyre was already a couple of millennia old. The very old city, right? So, which is also interesting. And, and Tyre is a, a city that comes up a number of times as you read even through the Gospels and, and the earlier chapter of Acts. So, they land at Tyre, which means they're on the mainland of what uh, we would call the Middle East, or scholars today would call the ancient Near East. And, um, and it says there the ship was to unload her cargo. All right, so there you go. There's the, uh, there's the itinerant part of the sermon today. Now, when we get to verse 4, we learn our first thing that I want to briefly talk about. This is point number one, and it's a short point, but it's a point that we should all pay attention to. Verse 4 says what? When they arrived at Tyre, what did they do? They found some disciples. That's good. Praise the Lord, right? So they arrive at Tyre, and there's a church there. And there are Christians there. Praise the Lord. Now, the second part of that was the part that really touched me. It said, we stayed there seven days. There's no indication in the Scripture that the believers in Tyre knew that they were coming. There's no indication in this passage that Paul sent anybody ahead of himself to let them know that they were coming. Yet they arrived, and you know, certainly throughout what was starting to become the Christian uh, church spread out throughout that region, Paul would have been a pretty well-known name, right? So here comes the Apostle Paul, and he arrives in Tyre, and he finds some believers, and he ends up being able, along with his traveling companions, to spend seven days with them. And what a blessed time that must have been, because if you read on, when he finally does depart from them, they all, along with their families, wives and children, they all accompanied him over to the shore to get on another ship, and they all knelt down and prayed together. And there is just something very beautiful, I think, about the fact that this church, which no doubt was a very tight-knit group of people, I'd like to think like we are, or we can be, or we should certainly endeavor to be, but, you know, when it came time to say goodbye, the families all together were in on it. And, uh, but this whole, this whole nice, tight-knit group of people who loved one another they obviously also were very ministry-minded, right? They, they, they quickly, I think, would have known it's safe to assume, would have known who the Apostle Paul was, and they 
were probably, I think, feeling honored that they could actually be part of something that the Lord was doing through the Apostle Paul. So they opened up their homes and the whole team found places to stay for seven days. Just out of the blue, somebody arrived, multiple men arrived, sure, stay with us for a week. What is that? What is that? That's, that's, that's a very important Christian virtue and practice known as hospitality. And the word hospitality, we tend to associate hospitality like, you know, a hotel has a complimentary breakfast in the morning. You know, that's hospitality. That's good. That's a nice, that's a nice thing, right? You're paying for it when you pay your you know, when you pay your hotel bill. But, you know, or we associate hospitality with inviting someone over for dinner, and, and, and so it is. Absolutely it is. But when you read the word hospitality, you obviously are confronted with what word that makes up that word. Hospital, right? And what, what, what is a hospital, to use the English here? A hospital is a place where you do whatever you have to do to help somebody get well. And that's the idea of hospitality, right? And that very well may be something as simple as having someone into your home for a meal or finding out what the needs of a brother and sister are and meeting them. In this case, it was like, whoa, Paul and his team just landed here in Tyre. Well, let's go meet them. You know, Paul finds the disciples and immediately he's got a place to stay for a week. And there's no indication when you when you read through this passage, it seems like everywhere that Paul goes, he stays for a day. When he comes to Tyre, he stays for a week. Right. And I don't think I'm reading into that that much because he was in a hurry to get to, to Jerusalem. We we the whole reason he stopped in Miletus, you remember, was what? He didn't want to go to Ephesus because he knew they would be very hospitable to him as well. And he would get pulled into teaching and everything else. Not that he didn't like teaching, but he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. But then when he gets to Tyre, he stops and he finds some disciples. And the hospitality and the fellowship were probably so wonderful and sweet that they stayed for a whole week. And I look at that. See, I told you I was mining a little bit, right? But I don't, but I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm stretching to observe all that. As a Christian, I look at that and I say, that's how I want my Christianity to be. Look, we may not all have ministries as spectacular as the Apostle Paul. But what about all these unnamed saints entire? I read that and you know what I say? We can do that. We can do that for each other. We can be that for each other. We can be that for other Christians. We can be that for other people in the body of Christ who have needs. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10 says this. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. That's a picture of the Christian walk. And I would, I would further point out to you contextually 
that the appearance of that set of verses in Romans 12, if you know your Bible, you know the book of Romans. I think up, Bob told me Upward was talking about Romans 12 the other night. If you know, if you know the, the structure of the book of Romans, you know that the first, essentially, this isn't perfect, but essentially the first 11 chapters of Romans are that grand theological discourse on the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. And, and many other things that are connected with that. But then chapter 12, where this appears, is right in the beginning of, okay, now you understand the doctrine, now here's how you ought to live. Don't be conformed to the world anymore. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So it starts with that. Your mind is transformed by God's word so that you can recognize and understand what his will for you is. And then you can receive that and then you can walk in that. And then as the verses go by in chapter 12, you come to this beautiful statement that's all part of knowing God's will and walking in God's will. Kindly affectionate to one another. Brotherly love. Preferring each other. Diligent. Fervent. Serving the Lord. Hopeful. Enduring tribulation. Praying steadfastly. Distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality, which is what you see played out in front of you in Tyre in Acts chapter 21, in the beginning of the chapter. May I suggest to you that hospitality is all by itself, in a way, a picture of the gospel. Because the true essence of hospitality is you're finding the need of a person and you're doing whatever it takes to try to help that person get that need met. That's why hospitals are called hospitals. Whatever it takes to help somebody get well. Right? What is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus, the Son of God, sent from the Father in heaven... He taught lots of wonderful things, of course. And we should learn those things and be obedient to those things. He performed great signs and miracles, not just to give people what they want, but to, but to testify to them that he had the power to do the even greater thing that they really needed. I mean, I mean, you might ask yourself, you know, you might say, well, you know, hey, that's a great hospital, John chapter 9, that blind guy uh, who, who got his eyesight back. That's, that's, that's beautiful right there, right? What could there possibly be that he could need more than that? Well, there is something more. There, listen, if, if he didn't have faith in Christ, he would die and be without God for all eternity in hell. Even though he, every person that got healed, every person that got fed, every person that had a demon cast out of them, every person that was cured of their leprosy, Every person that got up and walked when they hadn't walked in years and years and years. That's only in the temporal what they needed. But the real hospitality of Christ was that he came and he gave all of us sin, sick people what we needed. When he died, he took in his own body the penalty for our sins. And he bore that when he went to the cross. And he died on the cross receiving in his own self 
the justice from God against my wickedness on my behalf in obedience to his father. Glory to the father. They buried him and on the third day he rose from the dead so that now, guess what? Here, you want hospitality? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How's that for hospitality? Right? Judgment is coming. God's going to judge everyone by his son. God's going to judge every nation. God's going to judge the earth. And nobody has any chance. Nobody. Think of the best person other than Jesus that you know. Nobody has any chance of standing in that judgment unless the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to them when they believe so that their standing before God is dependent upon Christ's righteousness and not their own lack of it. That's the gospel. That's hospitality. That's why hospitality among Christians is such a beautiful thing because you're ministering in a small portrait kind of way like Christ ministered to the world. Amen? Let's press on. That was the first point. Now, the second point, here's the one where we'll spend most of the rest of our time and then the last two go by boom, boom. All right? There's this thing that comes up in the next verse. Well, in the second half of verse, in the next sentence. It says, they, these are the disciples of Tyre, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, I want to like jump around here. I told you, not really take this in order. More like a topical thing. I, I read that, and then I, I thought about towards the end of the chapter, uh, or towards the end of the passage, down in verse 10, they're, when they're in Caesarea, and they're at Philip's house, they gather together, and this guy Agabus came in. And I, I, I've made reference to Agabus in past sermons and told you eventually we would get there and talk about it more. Today's that day. <laughs> so here we are. So, so uh, Agabus does this thing. He takes Paul's belt, and he binds, verse 11 now, he binds his own hands and feet. You know, so people probably look, well, what is going on here? And then he says this, thus says the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So, so you have the, the, the thing that those two things have in common are the mention of the Holy Spirit as the one who prompted what was said. The Holy Spirit told these wonderful saints in Tyre, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then you have Agabus, not saying not to go up to Jerusalem, but saying, here's what's going to happen to the person who owns this belt, meaning Paul. He's going to be bound. He's going to be arrested and bound in Jerusalem. And of course... The way that the Christians, including Luke, he includes himself in this in verse 12. You see it? Uh, he says, now when we heard these things. So Luke even includes himself in this. When we heard these things, both we and those from that place, meaning Philip, his daughters, 
and everyone else that's part of the group there, they start telling them, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, it should cause you to think, these aren't like, these aren't like these phony televangelists and stuff that you see, right? Where they're always saying the Holy Spirit this and they give all these prophecies that always lead to telling you why you should send the money, right? This is, these aren't charlatans. These are just regular, everyday Christians who are speaking by the Spirit of God. And I got to thinking to myself, why is the Holy... In other words, it's genuine. There's nothing fake about this, right? They love Paul. But the Holy Spirit was leading them to say these things to Paul. And I'm trying to think to myself because the Holy Spirit is definitely leading Paul to go to Jerusalem. And yet the Holy Spirit is also telling these other Christians to warn Paul about going to Jerusalem. Now, it's not difficult to reconcile in your mind what's going on. The other Christians, because they love Paul, are interpreting what the Holy Spirit says a little differently. That's all. They're interpreting the warning as, don't go, don't go, don't go. Paul is interpreting the warning as, yep, I know what's coming. Yep, I know what's coming. Yep, I know what's coming. And then they have that little run-in at the very end of the passage where Paul finally says, why are you breaking my heart like this? I'm ready to die. Right? It's fine. The, Lord, the Lord's called me to this. But then what that prompted me to think a little further about, and what I want to talk about a little bit for the next few minutes here, is this whole idea of how are these people speaking by the Spirit? How are they speaking by the Holy Spirit? You know? I mean, a lot you'll see a lot of times in modern, you know, church settings, places where people claim to be prophets. There's even mentioned in this passage the four daughters of Philip who they all prophesy. There's no detail given in any of it. The three instances. The Holy Spirit having the Christians at Tyre talk to Paul by the Spirit. There's four daughters of Philip who prophesy, which is a gift of the Spirit. Come on Thursday night, we're going into 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be talking about that a little bit. And then you have this Agabus, when they get to Caesarea, by the Holy Spirit, telling Paul that he's going to be bound hand and foot. But there isn't like any process laid out. Like, here's what you have to do. Or here's who does this. How does this work? What does this mean? And it got me to thinking a little deeper just about our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And we should try to understand this a little bit. So now here I'm on my second point, and this point has four sub-points. All right? You ready? We'll go fast through this. Can the Holy Spirit lead us? Can the Holy Spirit, if you will, speak to us? Does the Holy Spirit prompt us? Does the Holy Spirit like work in a really practical way in us? Of course, the answer to all of that is yes. Of course. Of course. He does more than that. He teaches us. He convicts us. He comforts us. 
So how does that come about? Let me, let me say if, what I think are a few things about it because I don't, I don't want to just like put forth some touchy-feely thing. Or, and, and I want to warn you. I want to warn you very much to be very careful and discerning about stuff that like popular like mega churches and media ministries and, and celebrity pastors. There's a lot of garbage that's put out in the, in the name of all of this. Be very careful. Here's what I think we should do is look at the Bible and see what the Bible says about this. Number one, number one, we should live our lives filled with the Spirit. We are called to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 tells us to be filled with the Spirit. How is one filled with the Spirit? Again, there isn't some magic formula that you can go to like a conference and be taught, you know. How is one filled with the Spirit? Well, the Bible says some things. Galatians 5.16 tells us that we should walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 says we should live in the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says we should not quench the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says that we should not grieve the Spirit. Here's what's important. All of those basic things that you get told when you first become a Christian. If you want to be filled with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and live in the Spirit, number one, you need to be a person of the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. Right? The Holy Spirit is the one who moved on the hearts and minds of people who wrote down what they wrote. And so, you should read the Bible. You should meditate on the Bible. You should talk amongst yourselves and talk to other people, even in public, about the Bible. You should memorize verses of the Bible. You should commit in your heart and pray to God for strength to be obedient to the simple instructions and commands of the Bible. You should learn to love the Bible and be a person who is filled with the knowledge of God's Word. Secondly, you need to pray. You should pray without ceasing. You should pray every day. And when you pray and something else comes up in your heart, you should pray again. And you should walk through the day praying to the Lord. We sang a song today that said, My voice, Lord, you will hear in the morning. I will direct my prayer unto you and I will look up. Right? That's, that's it. You wake up and you turn to the Lord. And as you walk through the day, you continue to pray and walk with the Lord. And number three, here's a, a big part of the work of the Spirit that gets overlooked. You should seek the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit is the seal in us unto the day of redemption that we belong to God. But the practical work of the Holy Spirit in us, among other things, is that He brings about a real, tangible, and experience of the sanctifying work that is done when He first comes into you when you believe. Let me share with you a couple of verses that explains what I mean. In the opening of 1 Peter chapter 1, the very opening of the book, Peter addresses them like this. 
to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, listen, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What often gets forgotten when we talk about someone getting saved, usually the modern American presentation of the gospel to somebody is presented strictly as about, you don't have to go to hell, you're going to go to heaven. That's true. But that's kind of the modern American way to do it. Let's tell people what they get. So, they, so they'll love it. And they'll like it. I mean, what person would you say to them, you know, if you just believe these things and pray this prayer, you're going to go to heaven forever. And there are literally people sitting in churches everywhere, probably right now, who believe that's all there is to the gospel. It's like, here's a couple facts about God and about Jesus. Pray this prayer and you'll go to heaven. Well, Peter, when he writes his letter, doesn't address it that way. He doesn't say to all of these pilgrims, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father who are going to heaven one day. Right? No. He says, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. When you were saved... When you first believed the gospel, if you've truly believed the gospel, God himself came into you. The Holy Spirit came into you. And from that moment, you were in the sight of God himself, sanctified. Sanctified means you were set apart. You have been set apart by God from this world, from the old person that you used to be, from everything about the sinful, ignorant life that you used to live. But you were set aside for a purpose. You were sanctified for obedience, which is to say you are to grow in that sanctification. If you were to continue to read through 1 Peter chapter 1, which I will not right now for time's sake, but you would eventually come to verse 13, which says this, Gird up the loins of your mind. We've gone over this before. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? So, rest on His grace. Trust in His grace. The realization of the promises of His grace will come to you when Jesus Christ appears when He comes. And then, but then, but the sentence does, there's no period after that. There's a comma. The sentence goes on. And verse 14 says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he, you ready for this? You ready for this? Here's a passage of scripture. I'm going to tell you right now that a lot of professing Christians hate. They'll never say that they hate it. But they practically hate it. And they have all sorts of theological reasons why it's not applicable to them. And that's garbage. Listen. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy. That's what sanctification is. It's being set apart. Set, set, set apart. He's saying, be sanctified. He's saying, be holy. He's saying, be sanctified in your conduct. Holiness and sanctification are basically the same thing. It means to be separated off. As he who called you is holy. Is God holy? Is God holy? Right. So as God is holy, as he who called you, who called you? God did through the gospel of Christ. 
As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, and you ready for this? He quotes from Deuteronomy. Be holy, for I am holy. Wait a minute, that's the law. Yes, it is. Deal with it. Amen. I, mean, I, mean, I mean, really, right? It's Peter writing to Christians and saying the reason you need to be holy in your conduct is because God is. It's the same command given to ancient Israel. Do you have any capacity to keep the law in your life? No. But this is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. You were sanctified when you believed, but you were sanctified for obedience, and that is to be worked out in your life as you live. That is why you must be what? What are we talking about? These people, these people who, who met up with Paul, the Holy Spirit, again, I'm getting away from what the passage says and, and just finding this little topic, mining for this little topic. They were speaking by the Holy Spirit. I want to be able in my life, and I think this is a good thing to want because I see it in the Bible happening among Christians. I want in my life to be able to, can I say this? Hear, sense, know, understand from the Lord how I ought to speak to other people. I want to be able to recognize when God is working in my heart and leading me and moving me. Obviously, the Bible has the chief place in all of this, right? You know what they say, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible out loud. Right? There's actually a better version of that, but that's, that's, the, that's the abridged version that I use. So, uh, so that's the idea, is I want to be holy in my conduct. Look, if you want to, if you want to be filled with this spirit, you need to be filled up with the word, you need to be praying and you need to be pursuing the practical outworking of the sanctification that was worked in you when you first believed in God, the Holy Spirit came in you. We think of being filled. Here's the problem. Christians think of being filled with the spirit in terms of what they see charismatic churches do on television. They think of being filled with the Spirit as being people standing in a large crowd and babbling and, 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 and stuff that nobody can understand and people laying hands on them and they're falling down on the ground. That's all games. That's a show. The real, the real working of the Holy Spirit, listen, He's in you. If you believe the gospel, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's in you now. And now you're called to be filled with the knowledge of his word, to pray without ceasing and to pursue, to pursue, to pursue the sanctifying work that was begun when you first believed. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's a shocking revelation. Ready? Here's why I'm a pastor and I get paid the big bucks for being a pastor, right? The Holy Spirit wants you to be holy. What a thought, right? And you can't work that out. But he can. But he can. So I think being able to listen to God starts with being filled with the Spirit and the pursuit of sanctification. But then, 
also being able to hear God. I think, turn with me to a great familiar story in the Old Testament. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Turn there. It, it, be, being filled with the Spirit, being able to recognize the Lord is something that is described here. It's the, you know the story of Elijah when he's on Mount Carmel and he has that back and forth with the prophets of Baal and it's King uh, Ahab. King Ahab is the king of Israel and he's married to a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel is a worshiper of Baal. Uh, Ahab the king allows the worship of Baal God causes this famine to come on all of Israel. Elijah preaches it. You know, you can read through the whole story, chapter 17, chapter 18. What happens eventually is there's this showdown on Mount Carmel. And they build an altar to Baal and all these prophets of Baal start crying out for Baal to come and burn up the offering and they're cutting themselves. And Isaiah is, is super chill standing there and like, you know, mocking them. Hey, maybe your God's gone out on a journey or something like that. You know, it's actually a really awesome scene, right? And then after they're done making fools of themselves, then, uh, you know, um, I, Elijah says, pour water all over my altar, dig a trench and fill it with water. Uh, water. And then he starts praying to the Lord. And while he's praying, God sends fire from heaven. <laughs> Burns the whole thing up, the water and everything. Jezebel didn't fear the Lord, didn't fear Yahweh after that happened. She wanted to kill Elijah. So Elijah runs away and hides. And then you come to chapter 19. And it says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Right? All the prophets of Baal ended up getting executed. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow this time. She said, she said I'm going to kill you. you know, forget about what just happened. You think that would humble a person, right? No, I'm going to kill you. And when he saw that, he rose, ran for his life, went to Beersheba. Okay. Uh, look down at verse 5. As he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and told him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals, a jar of water. So he ate, drank, and laid back down again. Uh, go down to verse 9. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. The word of Yahweh, here it comes. The word of Yahweh comes to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. And the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars. I mean, what a ministry. He goes and this incredible, amazing thing happens. And afterwards you think, everyone wants to turn back to Yahweh. Nope, Jezebel wants him dead. So he's talking to the Lord and he says, he says, I alone am left and they seek to take my life. So he says, the Lord says to him, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Verse 11. And behold, Yahweh passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, what? A still, small voice. And the implication is that's that's where the Lord is. That's where you hear from the Lord. Modern Christianity has become a show. Make it big. Make it loud. Lots of noise. Stay busy. Do this, do that, do this, do that. And you wonder why nobody hears from the Lord. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the wind. Listen, listen. He, he is known in the inner man. He's the discerner of the hearts. He knows our thoughts. That's where God is met. Don't buy into the modern version of Christianity that drowns out God. Learn to walk with Him. Learn to listen to Him. Learn to pray and be quiet before Him. You know what one of my favorite points of our corporate worship is together? When we have the Lord's Supper and I just say, now just sit there quietly. I have yet to ever be in another, I'm not saying this to brag, but I've, I've never yet been in another church where people will just sit for a minute quietly. But I, <laughs> timing is everything. Um, but no, no, listen, it's awesome. When you sit quietly, you, when you sit quietly, what is being blocked out? Everything in this world. May I say to you, in your mind, in your heart, there is no one but you and God. There's no TV shows. There's no sports. There's no parties. There's no noise. Learn, learn to listen. We're at the end of our time, so I, 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 here you go. It's going to take longer to go through all this than I thought after all anyway, but I, I, don't, I, I want to leave you with this. And I don't, want you, I don't want you to go from here thinking that Lou's talking all, about all this weird stuff where God speaks to us and all that stuff. Believe me, I think, I think that hearing from the Lord in the modern context is virtually exclusively a function of reading and understanding the Bible. So we're going to get into that. But you know, the Lord puts things on our hearts, doesn't he? Have, in your life as a Christian, has God never just like put it on your heart to do this or say that or go to this person or witness to that person? Have you really lived a Christian life here? You've never one time seen the Lord just intervene in some way where, man, that had to be the Lord. Who led me in that? Well, that's where he's found. God isn't conjured up like a genie. God isn't like, God isn't like evoked like some snake charmer playing an instrument. God is found when we're silent and we attune our ears, our spiritual ears, 
to what He would do in us. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the wind. He's not in the fire. He's in the still, small voice. Be filled with His Spirit. Read the Bible. Pay attention. Listen. Pray. All day. Pursue the practical outworking of sanctification. And shut some of the stuff off. Go in the room and shut the door and seek the Lord in secret that he may reward you openly. Don't live a noisy life. Live a simple life where there's lots of time and space and room for you and God. Here, your final thought. You ready for a mind-blowing thought? God desires that with you. What? Lord, do you, do you really know what goes on in my mind and my heart sometimes? What do you mean? You God desires that with you. Our Father in heaven, teach us, Lord, to be filled with your spirit. Teach us, Lord, to love your word. Teach us to pray without ceasing. Teach us, teach us, Lord, to pursue sanctification and honor and holiness. For you are holy. Teach us to be quiet that you might speak and lead and minister to us. I know there's more to say here, but thank you for giving this to us today. Help us to go now and be doers of it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up with me, please? We're just going to end right there. I'm sorry, there's still one more hymn, but I'm going to set it aside for next week. All right, praise the Lord. I think, I think you heard some things today that you can go out in your own life and act on right away. Walk with Him. Listen to Him. He wants that. Thank you for being here today, everyone. Uh, remember everything that's going on in the life of the church.